Scattered across the Irish countryside are roughly 45,000 or so mysterious ring forts. These forts, it's believed, were constructed by the people of Ireland well over a thousand years ago as enclosures around their homes. The home, or sometimes group of homes, would be built in the center of these ring-shaped mounds of dirt, and then the ring would be fortified by a fence, or a hedge, or sometimes a thick ring of trees along the circumference of the mound. Nowadays, the rickety structures inside of the rings, as well as the fortifications atop them, have succumbed to the forces of time, and little remains of the ring forts, only the strange ring-shaped dirt mounds, haphazardly strewn all throughout Ireland. Little is known about these ring forts, and as a result, they have become the subject of folklore, with stories telling of their possession of magical powers given to them by ancient Celtic druids, or that they were supernatural portals to another dimension inhabited by fairies. And for this reason, they are often referred to as fairy forts. One such story is that of Tom Connors, a kind and humble man who lived in a small town called Dromore, where he owned a modest farm and lived with his wife, five children, and their four cows. As the story goes, in one corner of Tom's farm, there was a fairy fort. Three of his cows seemed to have an aversion to it, and never grazed there. But one, his favorite cow, a gentle female named Kubi, was quite the opposite. She insisted on grazing inside the ring of the fairy fort, a behavior that Tom believed to be bad luck. He did his best to deter her from grazing in the ring, driving her away whenever he caught her doing it, and instructing his wife and children to do the same. But to no avail, Kubi continued to graze there. And then, one morning when Tom went out to the field, to his dismay he found Kubi lying pathetically on the ground with both of her front legs broken. Tom was left with no choice but to kill his favorite cow. So he ran back home, grabbed his knife, killed, skinned, and butchered Kubi, who, in a final act of giving, fed the family for many weeks to come. Then, many months following Kubi's death, the story becomes very strange. Mrs. Connors began seeing a mysterious cow in their pasture, a cow that appeared to be identical to Kubi. The cow would go into the fairy fort where a young girl would appear and begin milking it, and then they would both disappear. Miss Connors saw the pair many times over the coming months, and it always seemed to be when Tom was away from the farm. Realizing the absurdity of what she was seeing, she kept quiet about the mysterious apparitions for a while. But they kept happening until eventually one evening she finally decided to tell Tom. He didn't believe her. But to temper his wife's fears, he went out to the fairy fort the next morning to investigate, and what he encountered there would baffle him and change his life forever. As he began to approach the fort, he saw Kubi enter it. And then he saw a young girl appear, a fairy seemingly out of nowhere with a pail and Neil to begin milking the cow. He called for the girl to put away the pail and stop milking the cow, and to go fetch her master, which she did. She disappeared into the fort, and moments later, a man appeared. The man explained to Tom that they had taken Kubi because their children needed milk, and they had disguised an old stray horse to look like Kubi, 
It was this horse that Tom had found with broken legs a year ago now, and it was this horse that he and his family had been eating ever since. But now the children were all grown, and Kuby's milk was no longer needed. The fairy, realizing the harm his actions had caused the Connors, agreed to return Tom's cow back to him, and assured him that the fairies would no longer trouble them. In fact, he even went so far as to make a promise to bring the family good luck. And they did. With the aid of the fairies, the Connors and their animals prospered. His crops yielded more than any other farmer in the land, and his animals each gave birth twice a year. Things were looking pretty good for Tom. But what happens if the fairies aren't on your side? This is Simply Strange, the podcast where anything spooky, weird, and goosebump-inducing is fair game. Hello there, I'm PJ, and welcome to episode 16 of Simply Strange. As always, thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode. I am so glad you could make it. This week, we are heading to Ireland to talk about fairies. So, without further ado, let's get into it. This is the story of Bridget Cleary. Bridget Boland was born in 1869 in the town of Ballyvedley. Her parents had her trained as a dressmaker in the nearby town of Clonmel, where she met Michael Cleary in August of 1887, and a short while later, the two got married. Following the completion of her apprenticeship, Bridget moved back to Ballyvedley where she and Michael lived with her elderly parents and she began what would eventually become a successful and well-regarded dressmaking business. In fact, Bridget, for a married woman of the time, became wildly successful. Not only did her dressmaking trade do very well, but she also raised hens and sold both eggs and fowl to the local townspeople, which was a lucrative source of income for her family as well. She did well for herself, very well and not everyone in town was particularly warm to her success. Ballyvedley was a tiny little town in rural Ireland that, at the time, had nine houses and was home to about 31 people, mostly peasant, farm, and field workers who were often illiterate. It was the type of town where everyone knew everyone else, and the people who knew Bridget described her as being a pleasant woman, but also very independent and according to some, a bit queer. She was imposing, and people say that she carried with her a sort of air of superiority that could sometimes rub people the wrong way. She dressed elegantly, as you might expect from someone whose livelihood is dressmaking. 
While other women of the time typically wore a simple smock and covered their heads with a shawl, Bridget wore vivid petticoats and colorful dresses, gold earrings, and sometimes a straw hat with a feather pinned to the top. She was unique, successful, and intimidating. Michael, on the other hand, continued to work in Clonmel about 11 miles away, an arrangement that left him away from home much of the time, and led to quite a few rumors floating around town that the Cleary's marriage was struggling, or that Bridget was having an affair. This was compounded by the fact that the couple didn't have any children, which was unusual for the time and reflected poorly on Michael. In 1883, Ireland introduced the Laborers Act, a new initiative in which rural local authorities demolished many of the dilapidated old cabins that the country's agricultural laborers resided in, and rehoused the occupants in newly constructed cottages on half-acre plots of land that the government would acquire from local farmers. The farmers hated it, but for everyone else involved, it was a pretty good deal. And in 1891, Bridget and Michael Cleary, as well as Bridget's parents, moved into one of these newly constructed cottages. This new cottage was easily one of the nicest, most luxurious homes in town. It was well-lit and well-ventilated, it had high ceilings and a beautiful view of the nearby mountains and valleys. It seemed like a perfect home, save for one little problem. The cottage was built right on top of a fairy ring. In fact, interestingly enough, the Clearies weren't even the first people to live there. When they first applied to live in the new cottage, they were rejected, and it was given to another laborer. But Reportedly, this other laborer began hearing unearthly cries and noises in the night. And fearing that they were fairies, he fled the property, leaving it available for the Clearies. Soon after moving into the new cottage, Bridget's mother died, leaving just Bridget, Michael, and Bridget's father, Patrick Boland, living in the home. Following her death, the family was able to rearrange things a little bit, allowing Michael to move his business to Ballyvedley so he no longer needed to travel to Clonmel for work all week. On Monday, March 4, 1895, Bridget went out to deliver eggs to her father's cousin, a rather unusual man by the name of Jack Dunn. It had snowed heavily the previous day, and while it was sunny out, the air was dry and it was very cold that morning. The distant mountains glistened as the sun reflected off of the snow blanketing their peaks. Jack lived with his wife about two miles away in a small house atop a hill that also happened to be near a fairy fort. Bridget made the snowy trip up the hill to the Dunn's house, but when she got there, no one was home. As she had hoped to collect payment for the eggs, Bridget waited on their doorstep while the frigid wind battered her as it rushed through the hills. But wherever the Dunns were, they did not seem to be in any hurry to return home, and Bridget was freezing. Eventually, she decided that she could no longer withstand the cold, and shivering, she made the journey back home, in hopes of warming herself by the fire when she arrived. But she soon found that she was so cold that not even the fire could warm her. The next morning, she began complaining of a vicious headache Fits of shivering continued to run through her body, and she found herself unable to leave bed. Over the coming days, she remained bedridden, 
and while the weather grew warmer, her condition worsened. As news spread of her illness, Bridget began to receive visits from various well-wishers, one of whom was Jack Dunn. Jack was a respected local storyteller. He walked with a limp due to his right leg being shorter than his left, and he was known to be something of a fairy expert. When Jack came to visit, he took one look at Bridget and made a startling proclamation. That is not Bridget Boland, he declared, later elaborating that she had one leg shorter than the other, a telltale sign that the woman in the bed was, in fact, a fairy. were a time when literacy rates were increasing, knowledge gaps were being filled in, and rational thinking was slowly winning out on superstition. Stories of fairies and various other pieces of folklore were beginning to take on a more metaphorical connotation, where they had once been taken literally by many people. But not everyone was quite there yet. Ireland has a deep and rich cache of fairy legends. And for some people, these stories still carried weight. According to Irish lore, fairies are finicky, humanoid creatures that inhabit our world, but are invisible to the human eye. These fairies, above all else, desire beauty. However, it is quite common for fairy children to be deformed at birth, a condition that adult fairies found very displeasing and insisted on remedying. Their solution would be to abduct human children, creatures that they deemed to be very beautiful, and replace them with the deformed fairy child, known as a changeling. In addition to children, a changeling could also come in the form of a wrinkled and gray elderly fairy. Or sometimes the fairies wouldn't even bother swapping for another fairy at all, and would instead replace their human victims with inanimate objects often a pile of sticks or a piece of furniture, using fairy magic to disguise it as a human. These objects were known as a stock. No one was truly safe from changelings. It's impossible to know when fairies were watching, and anytime someone were to look enviously upon a baby or even an attractive adult, they were putting that person at risk of being abducted by fairies and replaced with a changeling. While changelings were disguised to look identical to those whom they were impersonating, there are some telltale signs that could give them away. Being born with physical deformities, unusual birthmarks, an ill temper, or even simply being left-handed are all things that could indicate that a child was, in fact, a changeling. Additionally, if a child or adult were to suddenly become extremely ill, the sickness could be the result of having been replaced with a sickly old changeling. In all cases, changelings were known to bring about bad luck, and families who were stricken by a changeling often fell into poverty as they sought to nurture and take care of the sickly creature. Dealing with changelings was a difficult business. They are traditionally known to be ill-tempered and difficult, 
and any poor treatment of a changeling could incite revenge from the fairies on those who abused the changeling, and as such, they must be treated with a sort of cautious respect. Or alternatively, you could hold the changeling over a fire, which would cause it to flee and bring back its human counterpart. While these superstitions seem absurd today, to the people of 1800s Ireland, they were very real. And there are cases scattered throughout Irish history where these superstitions led to disastrous results. One such instance occurred in 1826. Michael Leahy was four years old, and while he was old enough that one might expect him to be able to stand and walk and talk, he was unable to do any of those things. He lived with his grandmother, who was too old to adequately care for the child, so she hired a woman named Anne Roche to assist her. Anne was an older woman, and was very superstitious, which resulted in her interpreting Michael's disabilities as evidence that he was, in fact, a fairy changeling. One day, as Anne bathed Michael in a river near his grandmother's farm, she decided to drive the changeling out of him. She held Michael underwater, believing that at any moment the true Michael would be returned. But instead, when she finally removed the poor boy's head from the river, she discovered that he had drowned. Later, while testifying in court, Anne insisted that she did it not with the intent to kill the child, but with the intent to cure him, to put the fairy out of it, as she put it. And she showed no remorse for her actions, insisting that the true Michael had already died four years ago when the fairies took him. Interestingly enough, Anne was found to be not guilty. Another similar event occurred in 1884. Young Philip Dillon was three years old and did not have the use of his limbs. Seeing this, a pair of his neighbors, Ellen Cushion and Anastasia Rourke, came to believe that Philip had been swapped with a fairy changeling at birth and that his mother was too foolish to see the truth. So the two women decided to take matters into their own hands. One day, while Philip's mother was out running errands, the two women broke into Philip's home. They stripped him naked, placed him atop a shovel, and held him over a fire, in the belief that the pain would drive away the changeling. It didn't. Instead, the unfortunate boy was left in critical condition and suffered severe burns. A short while later, Ellen and Anastasia were arrested. These tragic cases are only a handful of examples. Not unlike the fairies themselves, fairy superstition was an unseen menace that lurked in the shadows and was capable of striking at any time with disastrous consequences. And in March of 1895, Bridget Cleary's husband, Michael, became its next victim. Initially, Michael Cleary brushed off Jack's declaration that Bridget had been replaced by a fairy changeling. 
He was one of the better educated people in town, after all. But elsewhere in Balavadely, rumors began to spread that Bridget had been taken by fairies. These rumors were further encouraged by Bridget's insistence that the trembling had began when she passed the fairy fort by Jack Dunn's house. Michael and Bridget's father, on the other hand, believed it to just be a bad cold. A bad cold that was getting worse every day. By Saturday, March 9th, Bridget's health had devolved to the point that Michael decided it was time to get a professional opinion from a doctor. So, Patrick Boland, Bridget's father, walked to the nearby town of Fetterd to go fetch Dr. William Crean. When he arrived, Patrick was informed that the doctor was out, so he left word for him to come to their house as soon as possible. And then he returned home. Over the next two days, it rained continuously, and Bridget's condition got worse and worse. But Dr. Crean never showed up. By Monday afternoon, Michael was fed up with waiting and made the trek to Fetterd himself, where he too was told that the doctor was out. He left word for the doctor to come tend to Bridget as soon as possible, and he returned home. To his frustration, the evening came and went, and then the next day, and Dr. Crean still never showed up. By this point, Michael was furious, so early Wednesday morning, he went back to Fetterd, stopping by the home of the local official responsible for medical health along the way where he reported Dr. Crean's behavior, or lack of, and he received a written order demanding the doctor attend Bridget immediately. Then he arrived in Fetterd, where the doctor was, as usual, nowhere to be found, but this time determined that the doctor would see Bridget. Today, he waited. Eventually, the doctor did return to town, and according to Michael, he was drunk and visibly irritated at having been reported but he had gone to attend to Bridget, stating that she was weak and irritable, but suffered only from a nervous excitement and a slight bronchitis. Michael picked up some medicine and wine from the local dispensary, as prescribed by the doctor, and he headed home, not entirely convinced that the doctor's evaluation was completely in line with the gravity of the situation. When he returned home late in the afternoon, he was greeted with a situation that had deteriorated drastically since he had left that morning. Many family members were there, some of whom claimed that Dr. Crean had been drunk and irritable when he arrived, and that he was rather unhelpful. And to Michael's distress, the local priest was there too. He had come to give his blessing, but upon seeing Bridget's condition, decided that it was more appropriate to administer the last rite of the church. This afternoon became a major turning point in the story of Bridget Cleary. Given his frustration at the way that Dr. Crean had handled her illness and his desperation to cure her, Michael Cleary began to slowly abandon reason. He had very little faith in the word of Dr. Crean, so when Jack Dunn returned later that evening with renewed claims that the doctor has nothing for you and that the sick woman in Bridget's bed wasn't actually Bridget, this time, Michael was a bit more inclined to listen. Jack convinced Michael to go consult a local fairy doctor. So early the next morning, Michael set out to visit him. The fairy doctor prescribed a remedy of boiled milk and herbs. This remedy was to be administered every evening in three doses, three times. And it had to be done before midnight. In preparation to begin Bridget's treatment, 
Michael quickly collected all of the necessary ingredients. But then, by a cruel twist of fate, Michael received a devastating piece of news. That his father had just died, and there was to be a wake held for him that night. Now, I think it's worth mentioning just how bad things are for Michael right now. His peers already have their own preconceived notions about him. It's strange that he and Bridget have no children, and there are rumors that his wife is having an affair. And now his wife is desperately ill. He just endured a stressful battle of wills with the local doctor. He came home to find the priest administering his wife's last rites. He's barely had any sleep since Bridget fell ill. And now his father has died. Michael is not in a good state of mind. He's desperate, and he's beginning to come unraveled. And in his desperation, he decides not to attend his father's wake. And instead, he begins Bridget's treatment. That evening, the night of Thursday, March 14th, Michael Cleary, Jack Dunn, and Patrick Boland, as well as a collection of other family members, boiled the milk and mixed the herbs and began administering them to Bridget. Each dose was a little more violent than the last, and each time Bridget labored a little bit more to stomach it. She gagged and struggled as Michael forced the foul concoction of herbs and milk down her throat, while the others pinned down her arms and legs to prevent her from resisting. Jack Dunn heated a poker in the fire and brandished it at her, jabbing at her clothes and hitting her in the forehead as he demanded, eat you witch, and be gone in the name of God. Bridget screamed as the torture continued, until eventually she could barely swallow any more of the mixture, and it instead began pouring down her face and drenching the bed. Michael began to force the mixture into her mouth, and then clamp it shut with his hand so that she had no choice but to swallow. And each time she did, he would demand, in the name of God, are you Bridget Boland, wife of Michael Cleary? And each time, Bridget would confirm that she was. But to no avail, Michael was not satisfied with her answers, and the torture would continue. Some versions of the story even allege that a foul concoction of urine and hen's droppings were thrown on her, a mixture that, according to fairy lore, is supposed to repel the fairy. Finally, Michael finished administering the fairy remedy, but that did not mean that there would be any solace for Bridget. For now, Michael began to violently shake her, continuing his line of questioning, and continuing to be dissatisfied with her answers. By now, Bridget was growing very weak. Her screams began to fade, and her struggling slowly stopped. As her answers grew weaker, Jack Dunn became impatient and insisted that a fire be built, claiming that that would make her answer. So, a fire was built, and Bridget, who was very weak, but still conscious, was held over the fire grate in the kitchen. For ten minutes they held her there, asking over and over whether she was truly Bridget Cleary, and each time she responded that yes, she was. And then it was midnight. As instructed by the fairy doctor, the treatment was complete for the night. The men brought Bridget back to her bed, and everyone eased out of their frenzy, gathering around Bridget who, by this point, was quite traumatized, delirious and ranting incoherently while her eyes rolled around erratically. 
Michael, much more gently this time, asked Bridget to give the name of each person standing around her bed. And despite her mental condition, Bridget managed to correctly identify everyone. This, finally, convinced them. Everyone began to console her, welcoming her back and assuring her that the worst had passed and that she would be all right now. The next morning, it seemed that the worst was over for Bridget. Her family appeared convinced that the fairy had been banished and that Bridget had returned, and her health was looking up as well. A steady stream of well-wishers had come to visit throughout the day, many of whom had lingered into the evening and were making small talk in the kitchen. By the end of the day, she was even feeling well enough to get dressed and get out of bed for the first time since she had been struck ill. With the assistance of some of her female visitors, she got dressed, and then Michael helped her into the kitchen, where her father was waiting, along with an assortment of family and friends, all of whom were ecstatic to see her up and about. Michael placed Bridget near the fire as her visitors began making small talk with her, wondering how she was faring. It seemed to be a perfectly pleasant evening, save for one little issue. As Bridget's health returned, so did her strong personality, and Michael, given the difficulty of the previous weeks, was in a bit of a foul mood. Before too long, the two began to get into petty arguments. Arguments that slowly escalated throughout the evening, until, around midnight, they reached a crescendo. Joanna Burke, Bridget's cousin, poured Bridget a cup of tea, but before she could give it to Bridget, Michael stopped her. Following their arguments throughout the evening, he was once again growing suspicious that Bridget was a fairy. So he took three pieces of bread with jam and insisted that Bridget eat them before she could have the tea. Bridget, somewhat confused as to why her husband had suddenly been sent into such a strange frenzy, obliged. She ate the first two pieces of bread, but as she did so, Michael began shouting at her. Are you Bridget Cleary, my wife, in the name of God? Twice he asked her this, and twice Bridget answered that she was his wife. But his demands had angered her, and she refused to eat the third slice of bread until she had her tea. Her refusal sent Michael into a rage, unlike anything anyone present had ever seen. He threw his wife to the ground, slamming her head on the earthen floor, and then leapt on her, maniacally yelling for the fairy to be gone. In the chaos, all of the visitors scrambled to the safety of the bedroom, where they watched the terrifying scene unfold. Michael began ripping Bridget's clothes off until she was wearing only her undergarments. Then he held her by the neck and grabbed a burning log from the fire, threatening to jam it down her throat if she didn't eat the final piece of bread, lighting her undergarments on fire in the process. He forced the last piece of bread into her mouth as the kitchen began to fill with smoke from the burning fabric. In the bedroom, the startled onlookers shouted at Michael in protest, begging him not to burn his wife. Some of them attempted to flee from the terrifying scene, only to find that Michael had locked all of the outside doors and held the key in his pocket. The enraged madman that was once Michael Cleary proclaimed that no one would leave until he had his wife back, that this woman was a deceiver 
and soon they would see her vanish out the chimney. Then he grabbed a nearby kerosene lamp and doused Bridget in oil, angering the fire and immediately engulfing his screaming wife in flames. For 15 minutes, the air grew thick with smoke and the smell of burning flesh as her screams grew quieter and quieter, and then stopped. Michael's terrified captives peered out the bedroom door in stunned silence to gaze upon the awful scene, as Michael began to wrap his wife's charred body in a sheet. Under threat of death, he instructed Bridget's father to help him carry the body. Together, the two carried her about a quarter mile away, where they buried her in a shallow grave in a muddy field. Then, Michael and Patrick returned to the home, where Michael gathered everyone together in the kitchen. He brandished a knife at his friends and family, and under threat of death, insisted that each of them take an oath of silence. They did as instructed, and only then were they finally allowed to leave the cottage. We'll likely never fully understand what exactly snapped in Michael Cleary's mind that night when he viciously killed his wife, claiming her to be a fairy. But we do know that he stood by his story for the rest of his life. The following three nights, Michael Cleary and Jack Dunn stood vigil at the fairy ring near Jack's house, both believing that at any moment they would see Bridget emerge from the darkness, ready to come home. Meanwhile, following Bridget's disappearance, an investigation was initiated, and after a week of searching, the authorities found Bridget's body in its shallow grave, burned and bruised, soaking wet, and naked, save for some tattered rags and a pair of black stockings. Immediately following this discovery, Michael Cleary was arrested and charged with murder, but he only served 15 years in prison. In the end, Bridget truly was taken by fairies, but not by the hand of any fairy ring or mysterious changeling, but instead by superstition that poisoned the mind of those around her and ultimately led to a brutal and inhumane death. that's a wrap for this week's episode as always you can connect with the show on social media i'm on instagram twitter and facebook just search for simply strange if you enjoy the show and haven't left a review on itunes yet then please consider doing that that's a really great way to help more people find the show plus i need validation and i like reading the reviews and if you really, really, really enjoy Simply Strange, you can also help support the show by going to patreon.com slash simplystrange and becoming a Patreon supporter. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and for all of the support. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As usual, I will be back with another weird and wild story for you in two weeks. And until then... I've got another spooky podcast I'd like to introduce you to, Southern Gothic. From the earliest British settlements on the shores of Virginia, to the treacherous swamps of Louisiana, and the isolated mountains of Appalachia, the American South has a rich history 
filled with eerie legends and mysterious hauntings. Join me, Brandon Schecksnyder, as I journey into its underbelly, exploring these tales of loss and heartbreak, tortured souls and spirits of the past, documenting ghost stories and legends amidst rich soundscapes and an eerie original soundtrack that can only be found on my podcast, Southern Gothic.